Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by University of Alabama senior journalism instructor Meredith Cummings. She's also the director of the Alabama Scholastic Press Association, the ASPA, and the National Elementary School Press Association, NESPA. This is part of our continuing focus on journalism teachers and professors. Our most recent guest in this area was Alana Vandersloos from Kinelon High School in New Jersey in episode 16. Meredith teaches graduate and introductory level classes in journalism. She's worked for multiple newspapers and is approaching 30 years experience in the field. In 2017, she created the Follow My Lead project in which she drove 10,000 miles across the country to speak with members of different news organizations. We'll get to that in a little bit. First of all, uh, welcome Meredith, thank you for joining us. Hi Mark, thanks for having me. All right, so I've got a lot of things I want to talk to you about, and let's start with teaching. Tell us a little bit more about who you are and what specifically you teach. Well, I'm Meredith Cummings, and um, I am from Birmingham, Alabama, originally. I teach at the University of Alabama. However, in my career, I've moved about 13 times, so I've lived in, if you name a state, I've probably lived there. <laughs> it feels that way. Um, I teach everything from, as you said, introductory to graduate level classes. I teach, for example, intro for majors, and then I teach a class that's intro for non-majors. So it's a humanities class at the University of Alabama. I work to get it accepted as one. Um, so traditionally, maybe students would have taken art history or theater. Um, now they can also take journalism. So I, that's a fascinating class to teach because I'll have, for example, chemistry majors, nursing majors, you know, people in there that don't um, really know and think about the media as much as you and I do. <laughs> so that's interesting. I teach editing and digital production. I teach a class called teaching multimedia journalism for education and journalism majors who want to go into classrooms and teach. So I really sort of run the gamut. I also teach some capstone classes where I've worked recently with um, Jimmy Wales, who's founder of Wikipedia. He's an Alabama graduate, a lot of people don't know that, and he worked with me on um, letting my class help with Wiki, excuse me, it's, it's called WT Social. When it launched, it was originally called Wiki Tribune in its beta version. So my class helped sort of beta test that, and also um, with some help from some folks at ProPublica, looked at, for example, 20 years of um, voter registration records in Alabama, to see when our license office closed, how that may have affected things. So I kind of do all of it. I do everything from here's how to write a news story and take a picture to the more high level um, journalism things. And I love it. I love it so much. What is the level of enthusiasm and sophistication uh, journalistically, both among the major students and the non-major students? The major students, the enthusiasm is high because, you know, they want to be there. Um, we do have a few concentrations. So one of our biggest one is sports journalism. Our sports media majors have just tripled and taken off in the last, I'd say, five to seven years, probably. I mean, Alabama is known for our football team, and we do have uh, other sports that we excel at. I don't think people sometimes realize that, but um, sports majors really sort of flock to us. And so the enthusiasm among our majors is high enthusiasm among non-majors is a little bit different. They come into the class not really knowing what to expect. Some of them love it. They love learning more about journalism. Their eyes are open to how some of the things work. And some of them decide, you know, this, this really isn't something that I really care that much about. And I understand that because that would have been me with, say, for example, 
math or high level science in college. So I don't take it personally. Um, but the way I explain it to people is when I'm teaching an intro class for majors, I say, you know, here, let's do journalism. And when I teach an intro class for non-majors, I say, here's how we do journalism and why we operate the way we do. You're in a state that's very politically one way, uh, pro-Trump. Uh, yeah. What was it like to teach during the presidential election? First of all, I think it helps that, if you don't mind, let me just provide a little perspective and context. Um, our um, state is uh, <laughs> it's varied, you know, there are pockets of blue. So um, we have Huntsville, which is where the NASA um, Space Center is and literal lots of rocket science. That's a sort of a little rocket scientist, excuse me, that's a blue pocket. We've got the Black Belt, which is one of the poorest regions in the country. It's named the Black Belt for the, the black rich soil that it has. And that's sort of a blue pocket as well. However, I will say um, regarding your pro-Trump comment, that's absolutely true. I have friends um, up in your neck of the woods and other parts of the country that can go you know, all day without ever encountering a Trump voter or seeing a sign or anything like that. And um, here, I mean, my neighbors have a Trump doormat, a bright red, you know, um, make America or keep America great, excuse me, doormat. And you can't go a block without seeing some sort of signage, bumper stickers everywhere, very pro-Trump. So to that end, I don't think it's necessarily changed the way I teach. Um, it may have changed the way some students receive what I have to teach. I say in the beginning, um, I get them to do a diversity assignment where I ask them to really reflect on how the media has shaped their image of themselves starting from when they were young. So that's a really interesting assignment to read because I've noticed in the past, say, five years, and this is just me and my you know, personal reflection on the papers I'm receiving. I don't want to extrapolate this into a larger thing, but I've noticed that there are a lot of um, specifically white young men who are very angry. They feel like they cannot speak out and be heard, and they're uh, without getting sort of shouted down. So that's been interesting to watch. This year, for the first time I noticed in these diversity essays, there has been a sea change of, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure there are many factors to which I could try to attribute this, but I don't. And this is a per this is a personal essay just between us. I say I never share it, so I'm just talking big picture here. But so many of these students have had their eyes opened by the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the um, things that have happened with the defund the police movement and um, a lot of things lately. So that's been interesting to watch. Just as a point A, and then point B to, uh, to more pointedly to your question. I always ask them after they write that essay, I say, okay, so we all come to the table, including myself, with our stuff, wherever we came from, whoever we hang out with, whatever our families raised us, our religion, our race, our, you know, anything, we, we come with all of our stuff. And we need to, as good journalists, check those, you know, check our bias at the door. We need to acknowledge our bias and then check it and know this is where I come from and a lot of other people might not and we need to listen to that. So whether I have a student in my class who's, you know, um, pro-Trump, as you said, there are a lot of them, or, um, you know, maybe pro-Biden or independent or libertarian, whatever, it doesn't matter. All that matters is they recognize their bias. And so I do the same. I tell them I am a, you know, Southern liberal feminist. And I, and I caveat that liberal with liberal for the South, <laughs> for where I am. I'm liberal. I don't know if in some states I would be considered <laughs> liberal, but, um, you know, I'm a mom, like I have a lot of different components of me and I need to recognize those before I go into any story so that I can think from another perspective. And that's kind of 
what I continue to teach, regardless of an election season or not. And um, I think that's really helpful for them. I know old school journalists like me, you know, we were brought up in a different time where you didn't, you didn't, I mean, for years when I taught, I didn't say my political affiliation. I still don't necessarily say, but I, you know, just saying I'm liberal is something that I wouldn't have given away before. But I do, I think more journalists need to espouse that, especially when we're teaching it, so that we can teach our students, okay, this is what I am, but that's not what, that's not all of everything out there. There's so many things out there that we can learn, so many people we can learn from. When you're giving examples to the students of things, are you giving them from, I mean, shoot, uh, are you presenting like a Fox News or a foxnews.com kind of that's example? A really, that's a good question. One of the things I routinely do is, excuse me, I walk into class and um, we talk about the news of the day. And I routinely pull up various news outlets on the screen so they can see how they are covered by the different outlets. And then we talk about that. I also, every morning, ask them for their, what outlet do you want me to pull up on the screen? So that I'm not just doing things that I would normally go to, but also things that they would normally go to. If we've had a big, you know, uh, NBA or, or NFL or MLB game, then I'm, they're gonna want me to pull up Sports Illustrated or ESPN or something, which is entertaining. You know, it's fun to also for me to see what outlets they are looking at. And that's another sign when I give them at the beginning of the year is I have them keep a media diary for about a week. Um, and I ask them to write down, uh, just jot down, you know, it's not a formal, formal assignment, but I ask them to write down what media outlets they go to. And I also ask them to differentiate between where they're going for news that they're looking for, news they want to find out. Like when you need news, where do you go? And also stuff they don't want. Where is that coming from? So for example, you might be sitting in an airport or you might be sitting in a doctor's office and the television's on. Or your mom, if you're like me, love you mom, um, might be sending you the day's worst possible news at the end of the day every day to tell you you're definitely going to die that night. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so you may have an intrusive family member or you may have um, something on Twitter that's just, you know, coming at you that you don't you wish you hadn't seen that. You can't unsee it or you don't want to know it. So I think it's important for them to start looking at the various things that they go to and things they don't want that are intruding. Because I, I don't think we often realize how much we're processing and how quickly we're processing all of the news that we see. And that's where some, uh, discussions over things like fake news, I presume, would, would come into play. Yes, yes. And, you know, fake news, that term is been popularized by um, President Trump in the 2016 election, but it's been around for as long as news has been around. Um, you know, biblical times, there was <laughs> there was fake news. Um, so uh, I think that it's just a different, it's a catchy, it's a catchy sort of marketing phrase for a lie is what it is. I think that's important to note. You've given a couple of examples uh, with regards to your intro classes. What about one of your more advanced classes? What's a typical class like maybe six weeks into the semester? Those are extremely discussion heavy classes. Um, we're really delving into the minutia about, um, you know, more media ethics and law and how things are operating. And, you know, if it's a class where we're producing a product, then we're producing a product. It's like a newsroom. The University of Alabama is one of two colleges in the country that um, operates a commercial television station. And so we have the Digital Media, media Center, which is located in Bryant-Denny Stadium, our football stadium. It, it's a beautiful state of the art. It's just gorgeous place to teach um, because I have a TV station right there. Alabama Public Radio is right there. Um, Crimson Tide Productions, which is, this, um, you know, just love Nick Saban show, things like that is right there. And so we have this wonderful um, just facility at our disposal. So when we're producing a news product, we have a place to do that 
that feels to me very much like a newsroom would feel. What's an example of a discussion? There was an ethics discussion. Jalen Brunson, who um, you probably know, went on to be an NBA player, but when he was at Villanova, excuse me, before he was at Villanova, when he was in high school, he uh, there's a game in which he, a photographer, a local photographer, took a picture of him basically colloquially um, flipping the bird to the crowd. And um, it sort of almost ruined his career because he was suspended from playing a game in which scouts were going to be at. And at the last minute, they reversed the suspension. It's a fascinating ethics case. And um, what it really boiled down to was the photographer's frames per minute. You needed to look at how fast was he shooting. And in the end, and the video clearly shows, it was a millisecond. It, it didn't, he wasn't actually doing what the picture showed that he did. And that just kind of floors students that, well, the picture, he's clearly shooting the bird and he shouldn't be doing that. And blah, you know, it's this whole discussion, especially if I have athletes in my class, which I often do, that makes it even more interesting. So that sort of ethics, you know, how the media covers things. And like in that particular situation, it could have ruined his career. He wanted to have a great career and it could have that picture and that article that was written and posted to the web could have, you know, implications for this human life. And I think it's really important to always remember whether it's business or economics or, you know, healthcare, whatever we're talking about, we're really talking about people. And I, I, we have a lot of discussions about that. How is this new law really going to affect you or me? One of the things that I've, I've gotten the sense of here is how impactful athletics are obviously uh, in the state and at the university goes without saying with regards to football, but certainly uh, other sports as well and how those can be used as larger examples uh, of things. What are the biggest challenges that you face in trying to teach? Biggest challenges. One of the things we've had changed at the university in the past, say, um, five years or so is that now more of our students, um, over 50% now of our students are from out of state. And that was not the case for a long time. It's, it's a fun challenge. So I, a lot of people think challenge, I think it is a bad thing. I think it's a fun challenge to watch this sort of melting pot change that we have at the university. Um, students from New Hampshire and California, um, you know, just all over. Uh, it's really fun. And then my international students. So it's always a challenge to get, get all of those voices in because I don't want to exclude anyone and I want to listen and I want them to have the time to listen. So time, time management, you know, is, is a small thing, but it's also large. That, that's a challenge. And um, I think to student stress level, you know, certainly is, has always, I mean, it's always been there. Um, I feel like just sort of learning to help them manage stress is a bigger part of my job than maybe it once was. And um, I could attribute that to a lot of, a lot of things, but I'm not a social, I'm not going to try. <laughs> well, certainly um, the pandemic. Yes, that, well, I was going to say teaching in the pandemic is a whole separate, you know, huge set of challenges. Um, teaching online, I, you know, often feel like I'm, I'm teaching into a void. Um, it's, it's just different. It just feels different. And I'm very much an extrovert. I love being with my students in a classroom. And I am a high risk person. I have a chronic illness. I've had it for 37 years. And I have not been in a building since March 10th. And so I'm being extremely careful. And so teaching in a pandemic is, is challenging, being online all the time. And um, just to speak to that, for example, you, I, I read an article from the um, upstate New York area yesterday. It was about coronavirus. And I think they were concerned because it was hitting around a 9%, um, around 9%, uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the term, but uh, Alabama, we're waffling between 20 and 40% right now. And it is, very much difficult to stay alive. <laughs> I feel very much like it's 
hard to be alive every day. And so that takes a lot of mental energy for me. And I know if it's taking energy for me, that it's certainly taking energy for our students. And I really, really try to be very mindful of that. And also during the pandemic, I have had many students get COVID and just trying to manage those schedules, letting them make up work and making sure they're okay has been um, difficult. Certainly uh, unique to 2020 and 2021. So each year, 10 to 20 students from around the country are selected to attend an intensive 10-day workshop held on the University of Alabama campus, campus each summer, the Multicultural Journalism Program. The workshop emphasizes multimedia reporting, writing, editing, graphics, photography, production, and basic communication skills. Participants produce the MJP Journal, both online and in print, to showcase what they've learned. Uh, I know that you're, this is a, a big thing for you. What uh, success has come from that? Oh my gosh. One of the goals of that program is to decrease, or excuse me, inc increase, not decrease, increase diversity in newsrooms around the country. And it is working. I can tell you, I can see it. I can see it working. Um, I've been doing this for 12 years now. And so I've been here long enough to see students go into the field. Also, we're, that program is about 30, I think 37 years old this year. And um, we have a large network of students who've gone through this program around the world. And it's great because um, the students that are here now, you know, they can reach out to those other former students and it's a, a network of alumni that can help with, you know, getting jobs and other things. It was actually founded as a minority. Um, that's what it used to be called workshop um, with assistance from the Dow Jones News Fund and uh, has evolved and is the multicultural journalism workshop. And, we routinely get applicants and students participating from around the country. I've had some out of uh, out of country applicants. Um, one we accepted last year uh, decided not to come at the last minute. I think his parents did not feel this is pre pandemic. Actually, I say last year. Let me skip back pre pandemic. But his parents didn't really feel comfortable with him coming to America in the end. Interestingly enough, because of the media images they see. Um, they just, because of all the mass shootings, they think we just walk around shooting each other all the time. They were just too concerned about that. I've, it's been interesting as well to see students coming from other states. Um, I had a young man from California in our last class and he was also openly um, gay, he was out, and um, he was extremely nervous about coming to Alabama, as you might imagine, you mentioned being a pro-Trump state. He loved it and he actually, you know, applied to the University of Alabama <laughs> and I was just really happy because um, he had a really great experience. And so I think it works both ways. I learned from them and they can learn from me about my home state, which I have a very, very much love hate relationship with. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, our, I'm really proud of this program because it is doing what we intend it to do. It is increasing diversity in communications fields, maybe not just journalism, but also in public relations and other communications fields. And this seems like a good time to segue into the Alabama Scholastic Press Association, which seeks to empower K-12 newspaper, yearbook, news magazine, literary magazine, website, and broadcast staffs in Alabama. You're the director. Uh, you're also doing a lot for uh, NESPA, which I mentioned. Uh, what sort of things do you do for these groups? And if you want to just kind of extol the virtues of them, feel free. Sure. Well, the Alabama Scholastic Press Association um, serves middle and high school students in our state. So most states, not all, but most have a Scholastic Press Association. 
Um, and I routinely get emails from teachers and students, um, students who want to maybe start a media program or students who are struggling and they need resources or teachers. Um, I get a lot. Of, um, I think this isn't specific to Alabama. I get a lot of emails from teachers who were sort of handed the school media by the principal. Here, you do the broadcast. And maybe that person teaches chemistry. And so they call me and they're panicked and they need help. And so we provide resources through one-on-one um, -on -one, uh you know, conversations, but also through events like uh, workshops, uh, big state commission is coming up in about a month, which I'm gearing up for um, virtually right now, and uh, two summer camps that we do. So um, Alabama Scholastic Press Association is an organization I'm very, very proud to direct. Our students are just absolutely outstanding and have so much drive, and it's just so fun to see as a, um, a journalist, just uh, the future is in great hands. It's just, it really is. Regarding NESPA, which is the National Elementary Schools Press Association, this is one of my passions and I am really, really proud to have it at the University of Alabama. We serve about 800 um, elementary schools nationwide and in some outlying countries, Virgin Islands, um, Ireland, where we have some um, English, or excuse me, American teachers um, who are teaching elementary schools. And Specific to journalism, there's a lot of talk about media literacy among students, and that's certainly extremely important. I do not want to diminish that at all. However, um, you know, nobody really does journalism specific. So we do journalism specific in elementary schools. And I became director because I was actually tasked with going to talk to my daughter's, um, I think it was third grade class, and, and put together a newspaper with them. And I'm not gonna lie, I didn't know where to start with a third grade class. I don't remember what it was like to be, you know, what is that, like eight, I think. <laughs> and so um, I found Mark Levin, who was um, at the Carolina Day School in um, Asheville, North Carolina at the time, and had founded this organization in 1994. And he helped me, he gave me some great resources and great tips and um, had done this routinely. And then when he was about to retire, he was gonna let the organization die. And I said, please, please don't do that. It's so helpful. And I know it can be so helpful to so many people. And so a couple of years and some legal wrangling later, we got, you know, we got it moved to the University of Alabama. And we are really a resource and clearinghouse for elementary school teachers who want to incorporate journalism into their curriculum or teach journalism in any way. And I think that's so important. Our students, our young children are growing up with phones in their hands. They are learning about journalism probably before the parents even, even realize it. I've learned a lot being director. And one of the things I've learned is that we do not have enough research about elementary schoolers and journalism. We need more because it's happening. We just don't exactly know the patterns that are happening. I want to talk about uh, as kind of a, a closing thing to put everything together. Uh, you've done some writing in a number of areas. Uh, one article is you did write about how high school journalism students were dealing with the pandemic. Uh, what did you find uh, from that for that? Uh, that was written for the Society for Professional Journalists magazine. Yes. Um, well, I pitched that story to them because um, Lou Harry, the editor there, who's really great, because I saw that um, I saw my, I have a lot of high school teachers around the country who are friends on social media, and I saw them just sort of plowing ahead with their school media right after schools closed for the pandemic. So the schools are shut down, yet the media moves on, which I thought was really interesting. And yes, so when I dug into it more and I talked to teachers and students around the country um, that I don't know, I was very careful not to interview my friends um, <laughs> for ethical reasons, I was just um, heartened and excited by the work they were doing. These are students who 
you know, are tired and, and well, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, they were happy to be let out of school. Let's just be honest, but they didn't have to keep going with their school media and without equipment, without a, a school to go to, they kept it going anyway. And they worked tirelessly, you know, long hours at night. And they're, these high schools around the country are just killing it, covering the news, just like media outlets that are professional are. I think often it's, it's, and I don't think they do it maliciously, but I think a lot of professional journalists sort of look down on um, student journalists as, oh, that's cute, and pat them on the head and send them on their way. But I would put some of these student journalists up against professionals any day. I really would. We'll continue our conversation with Meredith Cummings in just a moment. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The other thing that you've written recently is about this follow my lead trip that you took uh, 10,000 miles across the country. You wrote, newsrooms are as varied as Americans, journalists are rich and struggling, immigrants and US natives, liberal and conservative, optimists and pessimists, and everything in between. Much of the public has a picture in their heads of the media, but I wanted to explore that term, which can mean many things. So what was the impetus for this and how planned out was it? Wow, this is a passion project for sure. <laughs> It was, um, it was planned out to the end, like every single thing, every single stop. Now, I did give myself some leeway um, for, a, you know, if I wanted to take a detour, I could, but I was very much on a schedule because I was teaching full-time and freelancing, and I was trying to fit 10,000 miles in where I could. So over spring break, and then most of it over the summer, a little bit over the Christmas holiday, <laughs> and um, it was most of it over the, over the summer, the months of June and July, I just really hauled across the country in my little red Volvo wagon with my daughter and God love her. She was trapped in the car with me the whole time. <laughs> and she came through beautifully. The impetus for this was that um, we were, it was 2017. We just had an election. We've, I mean, any journalist knows that the, um, that politicians in the press have always been combative. That's nothing new, but President Trump was um, very much calling out journalists for, you know, being enemies of the state. And there was a lot going on, not just that, but there was a lot going on nationally, um, a lot of hate directed at journalists. It felt very much like time, a change in time, like I was witnessing history with, with the political climate. Uh, school shootings were happening. There was a shooting, I remember, I think the day I left, a lot was happening. There were wildfires everywhere I went. Um, I narrowly missed two of them. It was extremely frightening. And so I, I felt like there was a lot happening. And a lot of news was being covered by journalists, but no one was covering them. Like, who was watchdogging the watchdogs? And I wanted to go see what the climate was like in individual newsrooms, in part because I was curious, and I'm a naturally curious lifelong learner. I can't help myself. And in part because I wanted to be able to take that information back to my classes and my students and say, here's, here's what's really happening in newsrooms around the country. And also, selfishly, I miss newsrooms. I love them. I love journalists. I love journalism people. They are my people, and I wanted to be around them. So I drove a big loop around the country, just all the way out to California, up to um, Oregon, and then back down through Colorado. Um, also went up to New York and um, 
everywhere. There's a, a, a on my website. I hope you don't mind me promoting right. this. <laughs> Not promoting it, just saying it's it'll be in the show notes. Your, yes, the link to the article, the link to the, your website will all be in the show notes. Okay, fantastic. Um, and you, you can see a map of where I went. And so that was the impetus. It was very planned out. Yes, very planned out. Now, you wrote about a number of different ones specifically. I noted three, uh, if you want to just give a short summary of each. Street Sheet in San Francisco, the Navajo Times, and the Louisville Texan Journal. I visited the Louisville Texan Journal, and the man that is the editor there that I visited with, Steve Southwell, was just amazing to get to know because he is a computer programmer by day and um, in the evening with his uh, wife and son in this tiny little office, produces a newspaper and delivers it himself because he is um, in the shadow of the Dallas-Fort Worth market and felt very much like his community in Louisville wasn't being covered, that the big news had happened in Dallas-Fort Worth was, but that his community was getting left out. So he started that just on his own um, with a, a, a printer at first, you know, like a regular desk printer, <laughs> and rolled it up and delivered it until it became much bigger and he was able to do more with that. Um, and I told him he's he was unusual when I met him because everyone else was rushing out of the burning building that was print newspapers into online and he was doing the opposite. He had actually been online and then started producing a print product, which I thought was fascinating. But I wanted to start with him as an example of just a very small sort of mom and pop startup situation. And then um, I moved out to, you mentioned Street Sheet in California. Street Sheet is in San Francisco and it is a newspaper um, produced by uh, homeless men and women. And they have a really interesting business model that they are able to keep the proceeds from the newspapers that they sell, That um, which is great because that keeps them employed. I had just the most eye-opening experience. I learned a lot about how their operation works, but also about covering homeless communities and the legal um, difficulties that, that go into that and that they face they actually have a lawyer that helped them with the newspaper because they actually need that. And um, it was just a great, really fun, <laughs> fun place to visit. It was, I'm, I'm laughing because of something funny that happened there, which I can get into in a minute. Um, but then the last thing, what was the other, uh, there was Navajo other, Times. Navajo Times, excuse me, I skipped them. That was in Arizona. Yes, I had not been, I had not visited the Navajo Reservation and I spent some time there getting to know, um, their editor and we had some great and the people that work there. I got everybody, the press room and all the reporters had so much um, fun talking to them. And, and they have, you know, challenges unique to the Navajo community to cover that the mainstream media don't know to cover or wouldn't cover. And also, uh, I remember talking to them about what diversity means there. I remember, I think it was the editor said to me, well, for us, diversity means someone who's not Navajo coming and working here because everyone is Navajo. So, you know, someone like me, white girl from Alabama, <laughs> if I were to go there and cover that, that would be diversity for them. Every single newsroom I visited, I talked to them about diversity and what the importance was and how they were, what that meant to them and how they were managing that. What was the funniest story from the time that you uh, spent working on this project? Well, I think two things come to mind. One is a story as much as a comment my daughter made that I mentioned in my wrap up when I, when I did a post about here are all the things I learned. We were in, I wanna say Colorado, we had circled the whole country and 
it was pretty tiresome. I'm not going to lie. I was exhausted because I would drive 13, 14 hours a day and then write and video and put it, edit video at night. And the last morning we woke up, I was going to Denver, um, a public radio place in Denver and, um, excuse me, no, I was going to a nonprofit in Denver and see, I, even I get confused. And my daughter in the hotel room, I just remember, um, and she was with me the whole time and she would often help me, you know, sort of if I needed help with video or if I couldn't hold everything, cause I'm only one person that she would help. And she woke up and she said, mom, I cannot go to one more newsroom and hear about doing social justice and good. I just can't do it. You know, she was just so tired. And I remember laughing and I let her sleep in and stay there that day and she didn't go with me. Um, that tickled me just on a personal level. However, I was giggling when I was thinking about Street Sheet because I think the funniest, a lot of strange things happened on this trip. And let me just tell you a lot. I could probably write a whole book about that. But one of the funniest things was when I was in the Street Sheet newsroom, um, TJ, the, the editor and, and a couple of his friends that worked there were at, there was a, I was interviewing and I noticed off to the side, there was a room with a door that was open. And in that room, there was a large dog. I'm trying to remember what kind of breed it was. I think it was a lab. And a very large dog sitting there. And the whole time I'm interviewing, I'm thinking, this is the most well-behaved dog I've ever seen in my life. This dog is not barking or making, he's just wonderful. Like, what a great dog. And when I got done, they said, oh, you want to come? Oh, I can't remember the dog's name. And they said, oh, do you want to go meet the dog? And I was like, sure, sure. So I grabbed my, my daughter. Um, and we walk over and he's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, pet him. I realized when I got into the room with the dog that it actually was a taxidermied dog. It wasn't real. I mean, alive, excuse me, it wasn't living. <laughs> I, was, I was immediately freaked out and I backed away and I was like, nope, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much. But that just really freaked me out that they have a newsroom dog that's um, a taxidermy dog. Uh, it reminded me of the old TV show Scrubs. If anyone's ever seen Scrubs, they have the same dog, yes. Rowdy. Yeah, same thing. And I, just, I think they liked laughing at me, but um, I got a kick out of it too. Are you working on any any projects besides the article that you wrote that incorporate your trip? I'm sorry, that incorporate what? That incorporate your trip. Oh, um, no. I pretty much think of that as in the rear view right now. However, in my mind, I'm gearing up for the next uh, reboot of that. I would love to go back um, after the pandemic and visit all of these places or do something similar and see how things have changed. You know, my overreaching goal was to see the climate in newsrooms. And the, the one thing that surprised me the most during that is I thought I would encounter a lot of angry journalists. I thought journalists would be angry because they were being called out by the um, the, the new president, then new president, and they were being called, they were being attacked by the public pretty regularly. And I didn't find any of that. Not, not one person was angry. They were all very much just heads down, focused on doing their jobs. Final so segment here deals with a couple of pay it forward type things. You've mentioned passion projects for just about everything that you have brought up so far. Yes. So what advice would you give someone who takes on a lot of journalism passion projects and wants to balance them all? I think if it's a true passion that it, it, it kind of almost works itself out. My daughter and I have an intergenerational podcast called Hissy Fit that we've, we've worked on. And um, I also do Skybox, which is a, a, a radio show in the fall here in Alabama. Um, those are passion projects, but they're fun. And I do think if you can choose things that are fun 
it's not so stressful to juggle because it, you look forward to them. You want to schedule them. You want to do them. So for me, it's always been, um, I don't think anybody in their right mind would drive 10,000 miles around the country like I did, but it was fun. I love road trips more than anybody should. And so to me, that was enjoyable. So I think really, if you want to juggle a lot, if you don't enjoy something and you can afford not to do it and financially or whatever your situation might be, don't do it. Life's too short. It really is. That's such a cliche, but I don't, I don't waste my time. I don't have time to waste. All right. And then the last question, is there a journalism organization that you aren't currently a director of that you would like to salute? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Um, well, professional organization is ProPublica. Man, I love ProPublica. I think they're doing some of the best journalism in the world right now. They're fantastic. Uh, I love them so much. And a couple of the reporters there, I've been lucky enough, Ken Schwenke um, has helped me with some things. And I just want to give them a shout out and say thank you. Um, Another organization that's dear to my heart is the Southern Interscholastic Press Association. It combines all of the Southern Scholastic Press Associations. And the reason that I want to shout out to them is Leslie Dennis, the director, is just a brilliant genius. But also Southern State Scholastic Journalism and Southern States have challenges that I don't think people in other parts of the country necessarily have. Southern States, honestly, um, a lot of, I don't want to just stereotype us, but a lot of times our students and our teachers tend to have more challenges with equipment. Frankly, it boils down to money, you know, um, they have financial challenges and um, educational curves that I think not everybody else has. So I really appreciate SIPA because SIPA has allowed me to connect with my counterparts in, in you know, Tennessee and Georgia and Mississippi and Florida, and we can all discuss challenges that are specific to us. When you take some of the southern states and, and you look at journalism and then you put it against, say, Texas or California, those are powerhouse, enormous states with thousands and thousands and thousands of students. And a lot of us also are smaller. We have a lot of rural land in our, in our states and small communities that have challenges. And one example of that is my summer camp. The summer was virtual. In the Black Belt, in some parts of our state, students don't have access to a computer if they're not at school. So I was then taking our sessions and typing and writing and printing the, the information from those and mailing it, hand, you know, snail mail, to students so that they can learn the material. And that is something I don't think everybody necessarily has to think about all the time. You can learn more about Meredith at meredithcummings.com, aspa.ua.edu for the Alabama Scholastic Press, and nespa.ua.edu for the elementary school press. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my goal this year to do at least one show per month on journalism education, whether it be talking to teachers or students from around the country or maybe even around the world. I hope they're all as enthusiastic and as interesting as Meredith Cummings was. I strongly recommend you check out Meredith's articles that are linked in the show notes. As someone who doesn't like to travel, I was trying to think of cross-country trips that I would enjoy and tolerate. Baseball stadiums are an obvious one, but a cross-country journalism tour would be pretty cool, too. It's nice to talk to someone who got to experience it. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who taught at my alma mater at the College of New Jersey, Trenton State College, for more than 30 years. In the dedication of my book, I wrote to Dr. Cole who taught me the keys to being a journalist and convinced me I had a future as one. I hope all journalism students have teachers like the ones I had at TCNJ. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. 
You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.